This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello. I'm here to talk about music. All of the music. Right. Um, I've also prepared too much, so I'm going to skip through half of it, I think. I'm waiting for the cue from Sean. Um, what I want to do is I want to look at, um, beyond the style changes and the genre shifts, to a core creative voice at the source of Bowie's uh, music, and to see if we can maybe see some trends, and maybe tease out a few meanings, that kind of thing. So let's do it. Okay, I had this record when I was younger. I loved it. Um, and I'm also part of the uh, panel called The Chameleon. But what I want to look at uh, here is not his changes, but his, same, his sameness. I'd also like to challenge this sort of idea uh, when he says, you know, basically, I'm not a musician. I'm a film director. It's kind of like when Brian Eno said, uh, you know, I'm a non-musician. I think it's just a provocative statement, to be honest. I also want to challenge this idea, um, right? A person who's a hack, who often get this, this idea sort of gets uh, bandied about sometimes that Bowie's not really a musician, he's more of a uh, performer, he's not a creator, he's a curator. He's a magpie, he's a stealer, that kind of thing. Um, so that's what I'm challenging today with this idea, and we're here talking about what David Bowie is. Um, and my very narrow little remit today for my 15 minutes is about him being a singer-songwriter and a producer and composer and a performer and interpreter, basically a world-class musician. And um, I think that he has a personally developed sonic and musical vernacular that he's been developing since the very start. I hope I can convince you. So uh, before we go digging around, um, there's a couple of underpinning ideas that we need to sort of look at, but I won't spend too much time getting into the nitty-gritty of this. Um, but the first important idea is that we treat recordings as the primary text. In classical music, we tend to treat the score as the primary text, as the authoritative document that we look to. Uh, with recordings, it's the record of the song. And with that comes the acknowledgement that the way it sounds is really important, that the way it sounds has got communicative value. And uh, so we'll be looking at timbre and just, you know, the sonic properties of music as well as the musical ones. Another really important idea is uh, music semiology. It's a really useful methodology. It's adapted from the study of linguistics, uh, if you don't know. And it's been used in pop music uh, by music analysts such as Phil Tagg and Dave Mation. And it just looks at signs and signifiers as carriers of meaning. So we can look at something and interpret it as a language that's trying to tell us things. And I think that's quite useful for this. And another really good word is hauntology, uh, which is, uh, again, another buzzword that you hear a lot in academia. But what it means is uh, when you have an object that's been created, but it has hauntings or ideas or shades of the past in it. A really good analogy is like if you took a digital photo and you applied a sapia uh, filter to it. That's kind of recontextualizing the meaning of the picture. I think we're going to boil it down to two research questions. The first one, if Bowie has made a music and sound language, what might comprise the vocabulary uh, and what are the rules, which is simple enough. And then if such a language can be recognized and understood by a listener, what potential is there for added meaning, value, increased appreciation of the song? 
So what we're going to do, and this is the best bit, we get to listen to some music, <laughs> stop listening to me chat. Um, so we're going to have a look at a small selection of some things that I've found. Um, these are just some general areas of critical listening. So we're going to begin with melody. I've got it actually written on the screen, so that makes it easy for you. This idea that, you know, usually a singer, most often, would build a phrase upwards like an arch, right? Build it, build it to a point of intensity. What we're seeing here is Bowie throwing his voice like a javelin, kind of like propelling it forward and then letting it fall. And this is just a trend that you see all the time. If you listen to Ashes to Ashes, thinking about this, the whole song is like that. He's constantly throwing up his voice and it's falling down. Even in the chorus where there is an ascending figure, there's two voices and the other one is doing the downward thing as well. And we can tease out lots of things like this. If I had an hour, I could boy to death. We could go through it all. But I'm not going to. So I'm going to move on to something else to do with melody. And that's prosody. And prosody just refers to uh, the way text, the way the words are set in a melody. So setting up listener expectations or uh, just, you know, the way the words scan with the music um, or maybe even the lyrical theme. So I'm just going to quickly go into that area. Um, thinking about sort of the way he uses his voice, which is something that I think we're all kind of obsessed with. Um, I made a spreadsheet. And, um, and it's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. It was such hard work, Bowie Research. Um, so what I did was I sort of plotted the songs, the voices he uses, uh, and a few other fun things like um, the lyrical theme and maybe the dominant instruments and maybe any modal effects and some other fun things. Uh, you can't see, but there's one for a haircut on the side. <laughs> no, there isn't at all. Um, okay, so this is still ongoing. I'm still sort of perfecting it. But here's some interesting bits and pieces. What we have here, it's a bit small for you to see, but this is, uh, the colors are voice types, and the circles are lyrical themes, and the size of the circle is the amount of examples we have. And what you can see is this sort of sandy color section is his crooning voice, and his crooning voice tends to sing about sex and nostalgia and fame and love. And on the outside, he has an unhinged voice, which I think is uh, pink soft pink, and that's on the outside. And that voice tends to sing about madness and death and nonsense and cut up things. And then he's got his mockney voice, which I forget where the color is. I think it's gray, brown, lovely. And his brown voice, his brown voice, his brown voice sings about fear and God, loneliness, age and ego. Um, it's interesting stuff, and then there's some mixtures. Um, this data set also gives us some other fun things. That's a bit small for you to see, but that's the years going by and his different voices. And you can tell that uh, his uh, detached voice doesn't really happen until Berlin. And then after Lodger, doesn't actually happen again until the Buddha of Suburbia. And so, again, these trends, uh, you know, on their own don't really reveal much, but together sort of paint a picture of how he uses his musical elements to possibly communicate, depending on how we interpret what he's saying. Here's another one. This is, um, I know, right? Don't you love data? Um, with this one, you've got sort of modes, and it's very teeny tiny up the side there, but we've got all the modes and some diatonic uh, keys and things like that. And here you can see that... Um, uh, for example, most songs use uh, Mixolydian mode, which is really just like a rock and roll mode. It kind of sounds like the blues scale, but not really. It's got a flattened seventh. Um, he uses that quite a lot. 
uh, but he only uses, uh, no, hang on, the red one is Lydian mode, where he's, he's, whenever he sings about nostalgia and age, he tends to use multiple diatonic transpositions. I'm still working with this, it's still not very elegant, but I think it's fun. Um, <laughs> gonna move on, because I haven't got much time. Um, Let's talk about, I've got five minutes, Jesus. All right, so I've got his harmonic language. Uh, let's just look at some charts. This is, I was gonna make you guess, but I haven't got time for that. This is the bridge to soul love, right? Um, this is from a website called Hick Theory, which is really great for looking at harmonies and things like that. What we're seeing here is that even on one of his most uh, straight-ahead rock albums, he's still using lots of uh, uh, interesting harmonies and temporary transpositions, and he's going off. This is not a three-chord wonder. This is quite sophisticated. And his musical language with harmony is informed by music hall and not so much the blues rock. And so you get this sort of rich harmonic language, particularly in something like Life on Mars, which is what this is, um, he really goes off into some far-flung places. It's a complicated piece of music. Um, it's not the work of a non-musician. It's the work of a very sophisticated and talented composer. And he tends to sort of play that down. But it's true, and he's still doing it. This is Where Are We Now? Um, not normal, colorful, full of detail. Let's move on. Um, great, Lydian mode. <laughs> um, how do I explain Lydian mode? Okay, for non-musicians, Lydian mode is like the Simpsons, uh, do, re, mi, fi, so, it's like a sharpened fourth, and it has a tritone in there. Um, he plays with it all the time, hardly anyone else ever does. But the fact that he uses Lydian mode so much is really fascinating, because when I teach music to my students at university and I'm looking for examples of Lydian mode, there are literally two other ones, and one of them is by Steve Vai, and the students tend to disengage with that. And so Bowie does it a lot. What does it mean? I think it's great. You know, Sue, in, uh, or in A Season of Crime, is in Lydian mode, and when I heard it for the first time, I was like, he's done it again. Ah! And then I was thinking, Immediately, of all the other times he's done it, and it, for me, my meanings start to become uh, multi-dimensional, and they start to contextualize. And for me, the meanings start to be constructed. And one of my favorite things is going through and finding these callbacks, because he puts them in there like Easter eggs, and they are so much fun to find. But I'm going to just like sort of wrap it up now. Um, if we answer the question, what can it mean? Um, there's this idea, and actual really great quote from David Bowie you might have seen, I think it might be down there, where he says, all art is unstable, right? Um, whereas uh, its meaning is not necessarily implied by the author. There are no, there's no authoritative voice, there's only multiple readings. This idea that we can't inscribe music with meaning, it has to be ascribed by the listener. And so we create the meanings, right? We follow the signs, we connect the dots, we construct the meanings, and we can do multiple readings. And, uh, you know, he's expecting us to do that as well. And I'm done, excellent. This is terrifying, thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.